Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. In our lesson today, we're going to look at a list of names given at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 as examples of men who had the kind of faith God wants to find in us. To understand our look into their lives, you'll have to understand what faith is. To understand our look into their lives, you'll have to understand that faith is believing or trusting in someone or something for a future outcome or benefit. Such a definition means that faith is not a rare thing but the most common thing of all. It's not always a good thing either, because you can believe in things that are wrong. You can make a mistake in what you believe in. So, faith is valuable only so far as what you have your faith in. And God is asking us to put our faith in Him. What the Bible teaches us about faith is not that faith is important in and of itself, but the faith is important based upon what the object of your faith is. That's how you have to understand it. Now, one last little observation about this before we consider these examples that are put before us, and I think you'll see this. Because all this is true, because of all that we've just said is true, that it's not what you believe that you believe that counts, but what you believe that counts. When you see that, then what you should understand is if this is the case, The persons that the Bible directs our attention to as having commendable faith may themselves not be commendable persons. The persons that they commend us to as having commendable faith may not themselves be commendable persons. They might not always engage in commendable activity and in commendable actions. In fact, there may be much about these individuals and their actions that is entirely uncommendable But what's being offered for us is the fact that it's not that, it's their faith in the object that they put their faith in that's important. They can be weak in character, weak in personal powers, and still have the one thing that is the most important, faith in the right one. And in the end, that is what matters most of all. We have no better example, actually, of that idea and that thought than taking now the list of the characters that are put before us and taking them into consideration. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So let's look at them very quickly. Gideon, right? You'll find the story of Gideon in Judges chapters 6 and 7, and I'm just going to give you a brief overview of each of these lives. When you meet Gideon and you find him in Judges chapter 6, he's actually attempting to winnow wheat while he's in a depression in the ground, a wine press where they would stand and put grapes in and stamp out the grapes to create the wine. And he's in a depression in the ground trying to win a wheat. Just as a basic idea here, that's not where you go when you want to win a wheat. That's where you throw kernels of wheat up and the wind blows away the chaff so that you can have the grain. You don't go into a hole in order to winnow things. You stand out in the open and you throw it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff away so you can get at the kernel, but that's not where Gideon is. And the reason Gideon is not there is because roving bands of Midianites are sweeping through the land of Israel 
and they're literally stealing or practically stealing the food from between the teeth of the Israelites. They're robbing them of everything they have and Gideon wants a little food for himself and maybe for his family and the only place that's safe to do is to get into some little divot in the ground and throw some wheat up in the air and you can almost imagine that he's blowing on it as he throws up the air trying to somehow winnow this wheat and listen, this is not a picture of courage or bravery. This is a picture of a person who's cowering and fearful, scratching and clawing for some basic existence and in this situation, with this picture in mind, God comes to Gideon and says to Gideon in the form of an angel, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Doesn't really fit the picture. And as soon as the angel speaks to Gideon, Gideon immediately, he even knows the ridiculous situation he's in. Gideon offers a protest. He begins to complain that there is no current evidence that God is working mightily in the midst of his people. He's wondering where is the expression of God's power that they've heard of from past generations, and it's not being expressed among his own people. And here's Gideon. He's fearful. He's defeated. He's doubting. If you go on and read the story, God leads Gideon to believe in him and to lead the people in defeating these Midianites. Eventually, God sets up a battle that Gideon's to engage in, and God calls upon Gideon to call two tribes out of the 12 tribes to go to battle against the Midianites. And there's 22,000 men that answer Gideon's call. Of those 22,000 men, God has Gideon ask them, which one of you is afraid to go into battle? And 12,000 of them bow out, so now they got 10,000. And then God says to Gideon, you know, I think 10,000 is too much for the battle I'm leading into, so when these men drink, I want you only to take those who show themselves watchful while they're drinking from the spring, and out of the 10,000, 300 of them drink in a way that demonstrates the due kind of diligence and watchfulness, and God says, that's what you need, 300. Now, here are your weapons, and he gives Gideon some pots and some torches and some trumpets. Here's the strategy. You're going to go and surround the army of the Midianites, and you're going to put your torches into these pots, and then at just the right moment, you're going to blow your trumpets and you're going to break the pots and you're going to let the light shine out surrounding these Midianites. Anyhow, there's your story. Here's what you need to know about Gideon. God spoke to this fearful, defeated, doubting Gideon. Gideon believed God, went into battle at God's command with God's strategy behind him with 300 men to face an army of 100,000 Midianites. And God gave him the victory. That's the story. Barak is the next one. Barak actually comes before Gideon in the story of the Judges in Judges chapter 4. The people on this occasion are in bondage to the Canaanites. And a prophetess by the name of Deborah comes to Barak and tells Barak that God is about to give he a victory over all the Canaanites. And so he goes and he calls and he takes. And I, by the way, I should mention, I mentioned Gideon took from two tribes. I was wrong. Gideon took from four tribes. Barak is to call together an army and a troop of individuals. When Gideon called from four tribes, he got 22,000 men to show up. Barak calls from two tribes, he gets 10,000 men to show up. Only two tribes are called, and they're to go against the Canaanites, who are, we're told are led by over 900 iron chariots. Basically, the picture here is the weaponry of the Israelites facing the Canaanites would be like a bunch of boys with 22s facing an army of tanks. And they're to go out and defeat them. 
Barak agrees to go, but only if Deborah will go with them and with the army as a sign of spiritual strength, and she does. And Barak leads, and the battle takes place along a river that appears to have flooded, thus bogging down these chariots and rendering them useless, and the Israelites win the battle. If you go on and read the story, you'll find out that Barak doesn't bring triumph over the the general of all these armies and chariots by the name of Sisera, but she's brought down by a Canaanite woman uh, by the name of Jael. So here's Barak. God declares a promise through Deborah. Barak believes God, but lacking confidence in his own ability to lead, Barak asks Deborah to go with him, but he goes against a far superior armory and prevails. Let's go to Samson. Samson, you'll read in Judges chapter 13 and 14. He lives from the time he's born under a Nazarite vow, as was instructed to his parents. And he's not to have his hair cut as a part of that vow. And a promise of God has come to his parents before his birth, and they likely have shared that promise with Samson. It's found in Judges chapter 13, verse 5. Here's what God said to his parents. The child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. If you read the story of Samson, you'll find out not once does Samson lead any army. Not an army of 22,000, not an army of 10,000, not an army of 300. That Samson's warfare against the Philistines is always on his own and by himself and solitary. But he's granted great strength and he knows... This is the amazing thing about the life of Samson. He knows that the strength is not in himself, but that it's given to him because he keeps the vow that God had told his parents he had to keep in not having his hair cut. And if you read the story of Samson, you'll discover that he's an individual of massive contradictions and passions that consume his life and make his life a tremendous tragedy. Yet, There's one thing in Samson, an overwhelming confidence that what God has promised regarding himself and the Philistines will take place, and that by God's help, he will begin to single-handedly defeat the Philistines throughout the land, and that he does. He begins to defeat them, and it's a defeat that ultimately Saul will take up, King Saul will take up, and King David will bring to a conclusion. Let's go to the next one, Jephthah. Jephthah you read about in Judges chapter 11. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And his brothers, born of his father and his father's legitimate wife, hate Jephthah. And they drive him out from any inheritance that he might claim from his father's house. And Jephthah, because he is a cast-off from his father and from his inheritance, becomes a highwayman. He becomes a robber. He has a band that gathers around him and they rob those who travel through the region that his band is in control of. As such, he becomes quite powerful. The Ammonites rise up, a tribe of people who had been slaves to the Amorites. And the Jews had been given the promise of God to overcome the Amorites and conquer them. But these slave people now who are set free from the Amorites rise up to develop their own power and they overcome and they take back the land that the Jews had conquered from the Amorites. And now they're persecuting the Jews and the Israelites. The men or elders of Israel go to Jephthah because of his power and the wiliness of this man and leading this band of thieves 
and ask him to go and deliver them from the Ammonites. And Jephthah strikes a deal with them. He basically says, if I give you the victory, will you make me, the prostitute's son, the cast off, will you make me the leader over all of you? They say, we will, we'll do it. Now, Jephthah knew God's word, and Jephthah knew the history of God's people, and he calls upon the king of the Ammonites to move off this land that the Israelites had been given to possess, a very land that they had been slaves into the Amorites. And he also knew the power of his God as opposed to the power of the God of the Ammonites. The Ammonites worshipped a God named Chemish, and they would sacrifice their children in the fire to this God named Chemish. This is what Jephthah writes or says to the king of the Ammonites, quote, Will you possess what Chemish gives you to possess? Is that what's going to happen here? Do you think you're holding on to this land because Chemish gave it to you? Whoever the Lord drives out before us, we will possess. I've not sinned against you, but you've wronged me to war against me. The Lord judged between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Jephthah rises out, the outcast son of a prostitute, a highwayman, a thief. But he knew God's word. He knew God's provision. He believed in God. He believed in what God had given to the nation of Israel. And in that confidence, he faced again a superior army, and he defeats them. That's Jephthah. David's another one here. David's the next one given to us. David is the youngest of eight brothers, the son of Jesse. God passes over all of the other seven brothers and comes to the youngest, David. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and I'm glad you joined us today to share with the Bread of Life Fellowship the food that's offered up on our table every Sunday. To learn more about us, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And remember to join us in our next broadcast as we complete a survey of these men of faith and then apply the lessons they teach us to our lives. Until the next time, God bless you.